If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. So when we're hosting groups and we're, we're watching people tasting, you know, some people are tasting more enthusiastic than others. And it's one of my very favorite things in the world to pour through the lineup of wines for people and have somebody who comes in not super excited about sparkling really leaving as a believer. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 585. This week we feature Gene Feldkamp and Dan Deephouse, owners of Corollary Wines, Willamette Valley. Challenges of winemaking are many, but when a winemaker's focus is exclusively sparkling, the game changes completely. Gene Feldkamp and Dan Deephouse are owners as well as winemaker at Corollary Wines in the Willamette Valley, Oregon. They've made sparkling wine in the traditional method since 2017, and soon they'll be using grapes grown on their new property. Strong challenges often produce top quality wine. You could hear Gene on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term traditional method. I'm on the phone today with Gene Feldkamp and Dan Deephouse of Corollary Wines in Willamette Valley. How are both of you today? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to uh, be with me on the phone. I do appreciate it. Uh, what's it like up there weather-wise in Willamette at this very point? Well, you've caught us uh, at the tail end of an ice storm, so uh, it's, it's a little slick out there, but it looks like it's warming up and we should be thawing out pretty pretty soon here. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we got hit with a foot uh, last four or five days ago, something like that. So we complained that we got no snow at Christmas, so Mother Nature has made up for it. Yep, Mother Nature does what she wants. And the ice storms are particularly scary, especially in an area that's mountainous and where you're at. And you are specifically in the Amity Eola area, correct? That's right. Our new vineyard is at the top of the Eola Amity Hills, kind of the northern half of the ABA. How many acres do you have? Uh, the property is 57 acres in total, and uh, of that 57, we've planted just under 13 acres of vines at this point. We have some additional acreage that, that could be planted in the future, so probably up to 25, 30 acres is plantable, uh, and there's about 25 acres that we're setting aside for oak restoration. We've got a really amazing population of Oregon oak in that area. Oh, wow, that's very cool. want to learn a little bit about your background. So, Dan, I'm going to go ahead and go over to you. Tell me about uh, when did you get into wine? How did it finally get its clutches in you? Uh, I got into wine when I was living back in Michigan. Gene uh, and I both used to work in the tech world, uh, but after working my day job, I would often go to this bar in Grand Rapids called Bar Devani, owned by this guy, uh, Rimpel Nayar, and he had a real passion for sharing wine. It still does have a real passion for sharing wine with people, especially uh, sparkling wine. And we would just geek out on things like grower champagne and just drink our way through different catalogs and a lot of fun. And I just really discovered a real love for wine there and uh, all, all the kind of different possible expressions that are possible in sparkling wine. And that kind of started me on a journey 
uh, kind of pre-Gene, but then I, I kind of roped her into the journey uh, <laughs> as, as we started our own journey, a little bit further down the line. So it's fair to say that the both of you kind of did this hand in hand. Oh, yeah, very much so. I, I don't think we could do it without each other. Did you spend any time in the northern uh, Michigan area checking out wines there? A little bit, uh, but not not a ton. It, it wasn't I moved to California, and when I met Gene, that I would say I really got serious about wine, and we started to get serious about wine. We, we actually used to have a, a supper club together, and I, I was looking, I was trying to woo, woo Gene at this time, <laughs> and... Uh, we both had a real passion for food, and so I was like, well, maybe I can get her to, like, cook with me more often. So we started this supper club. It's kind of like a, a fancy word for an underground restaurant in our house. And basically, once a month, we would invite her and do dinners, like five, six-course dinners. Oh, fun. And do wine pairings, and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we, we obviously we spent a lot of time together, and that kind of set us down the food and wine rabbit hole together. Oh, that's very cool. That that sounds like a lot of fun. Obviously, your focus is sparkling, uh, and, and I want to get into that in just a minute, but uh, it, did it start specifically at sparkling, or you know, was there kind of a combination of still wine and sparkling? I mean, our focus is exclusively sparkling, so um, it definitely, definitely started there. Um, but, you know, when we were thinking about getting into the world of wine, I think, you know, we, we thought about a lot of things, but it was pretty immediately clear that sparkling was really what we loved and what we were passionate about. Um, so I think, you know, still wine was that we only uh, decided to pursue as kind of garage projects every couple of years. Uh, we'll do something fun, but yeah, exclusively sparkling. Sure. You know, now comes the, the kind of question, you sound like two really normal, rational people. Why, why would you want to get in the wine business? <laughs> Great question. Uh, one that I'm asking myself more as the year, years go on. <laughs> um, yeah, we, you know, so as Dan mentioned a, a little earlier, we both used to work in the tech industry. And um, I think I, in particular, felt like that wasn't something I wanted to do for my whole life. Um, it just didn't feel important enough to me. There wasn't a sense of mission to it. And um, so we started kind of thinking about, you know, what, what could we do for 50 years? What could, what's worth really devoting our time to? And, um, you know, sparkling is a very slow, slow process. It's at least four years start to finish for one of our bottles to be ready. And, you know, you get one chance a year to make this beautiful product. And um, so it just, it really takes a lot of time. And, Obviously, to do agriculture correctly, you're really investing a lot of time and a lot of sort of blood, sweat, and tears. And so it just, all of the aspects of it really sort of came together for me as something that felt important, something that felt really worth devoting um, years of my life to. Yeah, and when we started on this journey, I mean, we would come up to Oregon pretty frequently because Jean is from here and her family's here, and we got exposed to there's some really amazing sparkling wines coming out of here but there wasn't a ton of focus on it yet and it just really seemed like there was a huge opportunity to be at the start of this explosion of sparkling wine here and really explore the the different potentials i mean sparkling wine is so many things 
beyond just kind of the standard kind of brute, you know, sparkling wine that a lot of people think of. It's rosé. It's Sonnier rosé. It's, you know, it can be sweet wine. It can be super dry. You know, there's all these different styles and spectrums to explore. And, you know, people in Champagne have done that, you know, really, really well. And it's really interesting. And, and Oregon has its own unique terroir and expression. And it just seemed really exciting to, to kind of go down that path. Tell me about the grapes that you're using in your sparkling wine. Yeah, we're, we're really focusing on the sort of traditional champagne uh, varieties. So Pinot Noir, Chardonnay. Uh, we're using some amazing Pinot Blanc from the Dundee Hills coming from Winter Hill Vineyard. Uh, we're also using Pinot Meunier. Uh, it took us a couple years to be able to source some of that, but we have some now, which is exciting. And then also just a little bit of Pinot Gris. Yeah, I was just heading that with the with the Pinot uh, Meunier. That has to be a little bit challenging because uh, not everybody's growing it there. Yeah, it's it's only in a few vineyards, and we've been lucky enough to be able to secure some contracts. And that's you know one of the reasons why we planted our own vineyard too. We you know we planted a couple acres of Pinot Meunier, and that's it, we found it just does so well here, and it's such a fantastic part of blend. It's so great on its own. So we're finally be able to start to be able to create, you know, single varietal Pinot Meunier wines in the future, which is really exciting. When did you start your, your first planting? Our vines went into the ground in uh, the fall of this past year. So they've only been a few months. Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking to have an ice storm right now, mm. <laughs> hoping those graphs hold. But, um, yeah, they're, they're baby vines right now. Yeah, that kind of goes back to the idea of being sane and being a winemaker. It's such a scary process, especially because you're dealing with Mother Nature, and uh, she's going to do whatever she wants. Yep. The uh, the weather report has taken on a new level of terrifyingness for me, for sure. <laughs> you know, so many winemakers I know are uh, part-time weather people, which makes sense because that is what you're dealing with. What uh, made you decide on the Eola Amity area? It's a, I mean, there are several vineyards that we work with that we've been sourcing from in that area where we're getting some just really beautiful fruit. Um, the Eola Amity Hills is kind of in a unique in the Willamette Valley. It's just behind the Van Duzer Corridor AVA, and so those Van Duzer winds that are coming in off the ocean are hitting the Eola Amity Hills as well, um, especially the western side where our, where our vineyard is. So it's a lot of wind influence. Um, so the sites there stay cooler, um, which is really one of the things that we're looking for for sparkling. Those cooler sites tend to cause the grapes to ripen more slowly, um, and so we get more hang time on the vine. You get better flavor development. makes makes much more interesting wine. And what what year was your first vintage? Twenty seventeen. Okay. And are either of you the winemaker? Are you both the winemaker? We are both the winemaker. Now, that's interesting. I, I always love talking to people in that situation because I'm sure there might be a, the occasional difference of opinion. Not too often. I, I think we, we agree pretty much across the board in terms of, uh, blind, like, yeah, I mean, we do everything blind in terms of, like, blends or dosage trials. It's very, very rare that we disagree. And if we do disagree, we usually, like, try it again and one of us, like, realizes that we were wrong. <laughs> I mean, I would say that we have different palettes. Sure. Um, yeah. Some sort of components of wine that I'm more sensitive to and some that Dan is more sensitive to. And so I think having different palettes tasting the same thing and sort of 
you know, getting getting all of that sensory input is really useful. Um, and so sometimes in those situations where we don't totally agree on something, we actually bring in additional people to taste with us. Um, I think just having having all of that, um, you know, tasting intelligence is really useful. That's a good way to put it, tasting intelligence. I like that. You know, like so many people talk about partners in winemaking, they're, they're you know, uh, two sides of a different coin. Uh, again, yes, different palettes coming together, but um, it's it's kind of uh, you're not always you're, you're not being dominant. One isn't being dominant, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I mean we both come into this project with different backgrounds. You know, I was in marketing before Dan was a product manager, and so we have sort of different skill sets, and um, you know, all of them all of them are proving useful <laughs> for the winery. That's good. Glad to hear that. Uh, the name Corollary, uh, where did that come from? Yeah, so the idea with Corollary is really this, it's, it's kind of like a math science term. It's, it's basically you know one thing, then you know another, right? Like uh, if you know that it's a square, then all the angles are 90 degrees or, or something like that. And we know that we have the right climate to make sparkling in Oregon. We know that we have amazing farmers here who can farm sustainably. We know that we have the right varieties, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, you know, et cetera. And that, the corollary of that, we believe, should be really great mm. sparkling wine. And, and so that's kind of the, the origin of the name. It's good. It's clever. Are you doing pet nets at all? No. Everything we do is traditional method. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, as I understand, you were doing sparkling cider in your garage. <laughs> yeah. In 2015, we started just experimenting. You know, uh, we're, we're restless people who always want to have a, a project and be working on something. And so we bought a couple hundred pounds of apples, which is about the the you know, you can envision the back of a Subaru being filled with apples. That, that's about how many apples that is. Yikes. And we decide we're going to make sparkling cider. We came into this as startup people, remember? So we this was sort of, we thought about, you know, if we're going to make sparkling wine, what's our MVP? We decided to define our MVP, you know, sort of the smallest experiment that you can conduct to validate an idea. And uh, so this this is that. Interesting way to start. Obviously, you're not doing that that anymore. I imagine that was just, uh, like you say, just something to start off with. Yeah, it was kind of to test the idea of, you know, it was to find out if we liked the, the process, the physical process of making sparkling. Um, the process for making sparkling cider is, is largely the same as the process for making sparkling wine, uh, if you do everything by hand. And so we thought we would just start with a few cases, see if we liked it. If we didn't like it, then we would have, you know, gone in a different direction and not started a winery. But we did like it, and then the cider turned out pretty well. So the next year we got, uh, we were sort of emboldened, and we bought some grapes the following year. That's definitely jumping in the deep end. Good for you. You know, before I was making jokes about being crazy getting into this business, and I have a great deal of respect for winemakers and the business you get into, but you, you'd kind of chuckled when I mentioned that before getting into this business. Uh, now that you're into it and you are in the deep end, uh, I'm sure it's certainly not exactly what you expected, but, uh, you know, how does it feel to you at this point? <laughs> uh, I, it, I mean, it's great. In a lot of ways, it's really great. The community of 
uh, you know, in the Willamette Valley and sort of in the wider world of wine is amazing. Um, so I love, love being part of that. Um, I think that, you know, some of the things I was a little surprised by that nobody talks about before you get into it, uh, the, the regulatory side of the wine business is a little <laughs> rough, not my favorite. Um, so I'm thankful there are some people who uh, enjoy the the details of that more than I do. Yeah. Regulatory it's, is its own animal, and that's an area that I'm more than happy to stay away from. So it is a wonderful community. I've been up there a number of times. I'm curious, uh, and I don't recall if they've done this at the Pinot auction every year, uh, the Pinot barrel auction. I don't know if they've had sparkling wine. I just don't remember off the top of my head, but is that something you'd be involved in? Um, you know, I don't I don't know my head either if they've done sparkling. Um the I think we we looked into it and the issue was that the they require specific vintages and because our wines take longer to produce we wouldn't be able to produce it, they wanted a vintage from like two years ago and our wines aren't ready for four years so we haven't done the the barrel auction specifically okay. but I participate with some of the other. Um, you know, organizations in the area. Um, we donated wine for Salud this year and to some of the others we've been involved in. That's great. It is a good auction. Well, at this point, being into this business, uh, any crazy experiences you can think about that you've run into? And I imagine there has to be a couple, again, things that you didn't necessarily expect. Well, I would say the craziest thing that happened uh, was from the first year that we bought grapes, so 2016, we uh, were still living in California at the time, and so we decided, you know, we're going to scale up some cider. We're going to try making actual wine. And we had a friend who had a an urban winery. He let us use kind of a corner of his winery, so we were making everything legally. And we got two tons of Pinot Noir from Anderson Valley, about four hours north of San Francisco. Sure. Um, we brought in the grapes, we made the wine, and uh, it was in barrel over the winter, and we thought everything was good, and uh, we we sort of had to bottle it quickly. Um, the, the winery that we were working in, the, the guy lost his lease, and we didn't have a lot of sort of lead time on that, so we bottled the wine quickly. We ship it to a storage facility in Oregon, and we thought everything was good. And then, fast nine months to harvest 2017, um, we had moved to Oregon at this point. We had officially started Corollary in Oregon, and we were doing our first Oregon harvest. And uh, I got a call from our storage facility, and they said, hey, uh, we have a little problem with one of your bins. There's some fruit flies. And normally when that happens, it's just that, you know, one of the bottles has exploded. That happens sometimes. You just go and you clean it up, and everything is fine. So I went down to check it out, and I opened the bin, and it immediately became clear that, like, all of the bottles were about half full. Oh, no. Um, yeah. So basically what happened was the, the capper that we had used was faulty, and all of the seals for all of the crown caps uh, had had not worked, basically. So the wine was leaking out, and so all of the wine from that first, um, sort of experimental vintage had to be destroyed. And so um, I, I hadn't considered that it was even a possibility that something like that could happen when we started. Um, that was probably the crazy that we've experienced. Well, that's pretty darn crazy. And as the old saying goes, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Holy cow. Uh, 
good for you continuing and not letting it get you down. Well, it's one of the reasons that we started small. I mean, you never know what's going to happen, so you kind of start small and scale up. Um, hopefully that was the, the – we've gotten our disaster out of the way. Hopefully we can uh, just <laughs> proceed smoothly from here. I've, I've heard one or two stories like that. So, uh, yeah. But in the process of scaling up, you're going to be building a uh, tasting room, correct? Yeah, we're building a tasting room out at our Eola Amity property, and it's – yeah, I, I'm, we're really excited about it. It's an amazing view. It kind of overlooks the whole valley to the west and the vineyard to the east. And so it's this kind of 360-degree kind of view and lesson into the valley geography and weather. And, it's yeah, it's really exciting. Is the experience going to be particularly just dedicated to the sparkling wines? Or are you going to have feature any kind of a menu or cheese or whatever it might be? Uh, it's really focused on the sparkling wine since, you know, that's that's all we make. Um, we aren't planning a food program, right? Um, you know, maybe maybe sometime down the line in the future. I think that would be really great, but we're going to take it one step at a time. Sure. Yeah, but all, all our tastings are, are led by Jean and I. So we sit down with the guests and we pour a flight of usually you know, five or six sparkling wines. Uh, so you get to taste through the whole lineup, a bunch of different single vineyard wines, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff um, that's, not super in distribution, so it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, it's great to just share sparkling wine and the the story with people. When do you expect to have that tasting room open? We are targeting a late spring opening. Um, construction being what it is, we're not committing to an exact date right now, but things are going well, so probably late spring. Good. Well, that's not all that far away because we're all rooting for spring. Believe me. Believe me. <laughs> Are you strictly working with the 750 format? Are you looking at any kind of a smaller or alternative packaging for your uh, sparkling wine? Uh, we started with 750s, but we do make everything in Magnum as well. We're hmm. huge fans of Magnums because they allow you to age sparkling wine for a long time. And when you age sparkling wine on cork, you get this whole second set of flavors that add caramel and toffee and kind of coffee, kind of secondary notes that happen, and it's, it's really fun. So our Magnum program, we just started releasing a couple months ago, and that was our first 2017 Magnum that we released, and then we have uh, other 2017 Magnums that are coming out in the spring for the different single vineyards. So all the Magnums that we're releasing are um, getting longer lease aging than the 750s, essentially. So the, the 2017s um, that we released this fall in Magnum, the 750s were starting in 2020. Um, so the Magnums had 60 months on lease. The ones that we're releasing this spring are going to have 72 months wow. entourage. And, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's an exciting kind of comparison. Um with the young release and then the, the later release in Magnum. Yeah, I'd say very exciting. So this is a question that I'm always curious about with winemakers, and especially I, I interview so many small wineries, and I think back to your 2017, your first vintage. How much do you keep aside? Because in the end, you know, you're in business to make a profit. You have to be able to feed the machine by selling your wine. But you also need to keep some, some behind. You keep it for aging, maybe for special sales, but uh, just roughly you know, for your first couple of vintages, if you don't mind saying how much of that you do sit on? Good question. 
collection. Um, of the 750s, normally we don't keep that much. Maybe uh, a case that we pull out for, you know, different tastings or things like that as time goes on. And the, and the reason for that is because the Magnum program is kind of our library program. We've, we've created a lot of Magnums, so we have, we have plenty. And uh, it, it gives it the time it needs to really uh, develop to its fullest potential. So, you know, of the different Magnums, we may make between 50 and 200 Magnums of any given cuvee, and so that gives us um, a good number to play with and important events and, you know, hold on to taste for, you know, a decade or two. And so about how many cases are you making now? I guess I'd say the 750s. Yeah, when we started Corollary, we started at, like, making five, 600 cases, and now we make about 2,000 cases uh, a year. Great. So many areas in the country have had issues with finding labor uh, to be able to work the property and, and just simply working in the winery. Uh, I know you're not t- all the way to that point yet, but uh, have you had any issues at this point? I don't know that we've had any specific issues yet. I mean, it's certainly a, a big topic of conversation within the industry. Um, I, you know, we have kind of a structural advantage in terms of harvest. For sparkling, we're picking a little bit earlier than uh, people who are farming for still. And so we were sort of like the first pick of the season for a, for a lot of crews. Um, so we're not competing so much for time. It's, yeah, you have all those people out there who are going to be picking for, you know, still wine, but it hasn't quite happened yet. So we're, we're, we've been lucky enough to work with some vineyard managers who have, you know, good access to, to labor during harvest. But, you know, we'll, Definitely people are, are concerned about it, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how things evolve in the future. When you started doing this, uh, going down this whole path, um, what was the most unusual or weird advice you were given? Well, that's a good question. Don't take wine. <laughs> <laughs> run away, run away. I mean, we did, we definitely did have sort of one of the sort of legendary really sparkling producers in the Willamette Valley. We had reached out to a lot of people for advice, and uh, he gave us kind of the email equivalent of a pat on the head. (laughs) He was like, you kids are crazy. I don't know what you're thinking. And that was it. So um, that was surprising and sort of funny. But I don't know. I mean, this isn't answering your question, but the Willamette Valley, the community here has been so helpful and so many people have, like, helped us along the way and shared their experiences. I really don't think we'd be able to be where we are with without all of those people. So it's not necessarily about people giving us crazy advice, but people have just been so open with their, their knowledge and their time. And that's really just meant a lot to us and um, helped us, I think, get where we are today. That's great. That's definitely an agricultural thing where people, farmers, help each other out. So uh, over the years, I've talked about sparkling wine. I am a fan, and uh, I think in the past, for some reason, it's not always been something that a lot of men gravitate towards. But as I see it now, it's starting to change. Are you seeing that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think our my lens on it, at least, is tasting. So when we're hosting groups and we're, we're watching people tasting, um, you know, some people are tasting more enthusiastic than others. And it's one of my very favorite things in the world to 
pour through the lineup of wines for people and have somebody who comes in not super excited about sparkling really leaving as a believer. <laughs> um, I think, you know, a lot of people just don't understand what goes into making traditional method sparkling. And, and a lot of people weirdly don't even con- connect to the idea of agriculture for sparkling wine before they come to a tasting. Um, so I think, you know, making those connections and watching that light bulb moment is, is pretty great. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, understand that, that wine is from grapes and from, from vineyards and everything, but for whatever reason, sparkling just isn't connected in that same way as much. Um, and so we're hoping to change that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's well said. And, and I'm sure a great source of pride when you do pour for people and they enjoy it. Well, I've come to the point of the interview where I get to ask my favorite question, and uh, this is one of the rare times I give this in advance because I normally don't hand out questions in advance. Uh, I I will admit I try to get as much of an organic answer as I possibly can. But uh, I'm sure at this point you've done some media and you've talked to all kinds of people as well as just people who love wine. What's the one question you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Yeah, this is a really good question and and one that I put some thought into. Um, I think, you know, people are excited about wine for a variety of reasons. It's tasty. It's about celebration. It's about connection. And those things are all, you know, great and and good reasons to love wine. Um, but I I don't get the question a lot about why wine matters. And, um, you know, as somebody who's really thought about this in the context of my life and sort of thinking about what can I do for the next 50 years of my life and what wasn't enough for that, um, I really had to think about why wine matters. And it kind of comes back to agriculture. Um, This is really hitting home now that we have a vineyard property and we're designing it and, you know, from the ground up and thinking about how are we sort of incorporating ecosystems and hopefully in the future, um, you know, potentially animals and really creating a whole sort of ecosystem designed to benefit the vineyard and the wines. Um, It's, you know, agriculture, I think, gets a bad rap because of factory farms, but small agriculture and integrated regenerative farming are really, really strong lever for taking care of the environment. And, um, you know, visiting a winery is one of the only ways that a lot of people ever really connect with agriculture. Um, A lot of people will never go to a farm in their lives, but they might visit a winery. And so helping people understand that connection between the land and, and these products that people love for other reasons, I think is so important. Um, it's one of the things that we sort of, it's an idea that we weave into our tastings. And if people leave with this sort of idea of connection between the land and how you take care of the land and how that comes through in the grapes and how it comes through in the wine, then I, then I think we've done our job. That was, uh, Truly an excellent answer, and I'm just going to kind of give a tip of the hat to uh, Eric Oz, who suggested to me after 15 years of doing this podcast that I should give that question out in advance, and so I guess it just paid off. So there you go. Thank you for putting the time. Definitely thank you for giving the question in advance. I think uh, on the spot would not have been able to come up with that, so thank you. 
to your point, yes, not often do people get to go to farms. Uh, it's it's strictly, you know, wineries are that one key to, to see this whole process. So for our listeners who in the future would like to come visit you, uh, or at least to learn a little bit about you, I don't know where you'll be doing your tastings, but uh, if you could tell me that, and also what is your website? Absolutely. The website is corollarywines.com, so C-O-R-O-L-L-A-R-Y-W-I-N-E-S.com. And if you visit the website, you can sign up for the email list. Um, And so that's the best way to get notified when we have uh, a a firm opening date for the tasting room in late spring. Um, And we would love for people to come visit us there as soon as we open. Very cool. Excellent. Well, uh, I hope I can get up there again soon. It's been too long. I'm overdue. Thank you both, Jean and Dan, for the time. Uh, I appreciate it. And man, I wish you uh, great success in the opening of your tasting room, as well as with your sparkling wines. Thank you, Ray. Thank you so much. Check out their website at corollarywines.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gisha. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2024.